This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. It's really nice to be here. When Christine called me, I was really interested in this whole concept of t talking about the issues of gender and how they ap apply to Im immunology and autoimmune illness, uh, because this is something that's very striking um, in what I do. As a rheumatologist, about three-quarters of my patients are women. And so first off, it's, you know, you can't uh, get through a day without being struck by the fact that these diseases predominate in women. But the issues certainly are bigger than that because there are many issues that not only are just part of, of, of a woman having this disease, obviously men do also, but trying to understand how that relationship with the disease and its treatment impacts uh, a, a woman from the standpoint of um, hormonal changes on a month-to-month -month basis with menstrual cycles and then considering uh, pregnancy and how that may uh, influence not only the fetus but also the mother and there there are larger concerns about what to do about estrogen replacement if estrogen is playing a role in the disease so there are really a lot of concerns that I think that you're going to be uh, addressing somewhat and I thought I saw that you have a background um, talk that was given in kind of the basics of immunology to give you some idea uh, about where we're coming from. And I realize you're not uh, in medicine. If I throw out terms that you don't know, please feel free to ask me of them. This is, that can be uh, informal enough and I'm going to try to allow enough time at the end to have a lot of questions. Uh, what I really want to do is give you a little bit of background about what two of the most common diseases we see in rheumatology are, and that's rheumatoid arthritis and then systemic lupus erythematosus. And we really shorten that to call that lupus, and there are kind of subsets of both of these diseases, and I'll try to touch a little bit on that. But I don't expect that you're going to walk out as experts of these, I just, of these diseases. I just hope that you'll at least have some uh, impression about what we're dealing with and then, of course, the question that we're really looking at a little more carefully is how, does, how do these diseases, um, as far as the incidence in women and how do um, they affect um, women in other um, parts of um, the reproduction side of things and those kinds of questions. So I have two handouts here, and I, they're a little bit diverse in the sense that the rheumatoid arthritis handout is actually a copy of a very nice pamphlet that's been put together by the Arthritis Foundation. And they also have some other pamphlets on um, many of the diseases that uh, we see in rheumatology. And if you're interested, on the very last sheet is the um, 800 number of the San Francisco office, and you can call there and they will send you up to six of their pamphlets free of charge, or you can order more of them. But there's some very good information if you have interest or you have friends or loved ones who have these kinds of illnesses. I think these pamphlets give a lot of information. 
And so this is just a copy of one of those because I didn't have enough on hand to give you out, so I just copied it. But it, it really goes through kind of the basis of information for rheumatoid arthritis. And then the other handout is actually a copy of an article that, that um, not an article, but a chapter that I wrote with uh, Jim McGuire on lupus. And it is very technical, but I'm hoping that some of the tables and graphs may give you some reference material. And certainly some of it will be, um, you'll be able to understand the other might be a little bit uh, too technical. But just to give you a little bit more information about lupus and probably more than you need to know, but you may want to use it uh, for reference. So I want to start with rheumatoid arthritis and just give you a, a little bit of um, a basis here. First off, in medicine we talk about two major areas when you talk about clinical medicine, and that is the symptoms, and that's what people come and tell us about. That's what you as a person give information to your doctor, what you feel, what things you've noticed, uh, what things have changed. And we refer to those as symptoms. So that's what's a part of the subjective um, part of our evaluation. And then the objective part, what we can see and measure, are what we call signs. So in rheumatology, a lot of what we're doing is putting together the symptoms and the signs and trying to identify what the underlying disease is. That's sometimes not always that simple and may take some years to really identify um, for certain what the disorder is, but oftentimes we can at least put it into a larger category. But in, this may help you in kind of identifying when we go through here, we're going to talk first about some of the symptoms and then the signs and, and then a little bit more about the uh, treatment as well. In, in, in rheumatoid arthritis, this is a female predominant disease. It's about three to one if you look female to male ratio. Uh, interestingly, it can affect any age. So from infancy to people in their 80s or 90s, you can develop rheumatoid arthritis anywhere along that time frame. But there is a cluster in the early uh, 20s to 40s. And we refer to this as kind of the childbearing years for women. And both lupus and rheumatoid arthritis predominate in those childbearing years. So when people think of rheumatologists, they often ask me, oh, you see all elderly people, which is really not true. Uh, the average age of my patients is under 40. So it's surprising to people when they hear that because they kind of have the thought about degenerative arthritis being more uh, common in the elderly, and certainly that's the most common form of arthritis. But as far as the autoimmune-based disease, and I use that term, if you've not heard it before, to refer to uh, your immune system basically attacking your own cells. Both rheumatoid arthritis and lupus are autoimmune diseases. Our immune system is really set up, as you may have learned, to fight off infections and to uh, do surveillance for cancer cells to get rid of any abnormal cells in our body. And that's the two major things the immune system does. In these autoimmune diseases, what happens is the immune system turns on your body, creates inflammation in tissues that are normal and thus creates uh, problems that we see as symptoms and signs of these disorders. So you think of these diseases basically an overactive immune system. This is really the opposite of something like HIV infection, where the immune system is underactive and you're at a lot of susceptibility to infection. Um, what happens in uh, rheumatoid arthritis and lupus, it's our treatment that lowers the immune reaction 
that leaves people susceptible to infections. It's not really so much the disease itself. Okay, so with that as a background, did everyone pretty much follow that? Any questions today? I first want to just give you a little bit of, of anatomy so you can follow when I talk about things. This is a joint, like a finger joint. Uh, the bone is here. There's a cartilage covering that's on the ends of the bones. In some joints, like the knee, there's additional cartilage, the meniscal cartilage, but in most joints, it's just on the ends of the bones here. Then there, this is the other tissues, um, would be tendons and bursas, little sacs that carry fluid, the tendons attached to muscles and then allow for motion around the joints. And then there's a covering, a capsule of tissue that covers the joint, and lining that is something we call synovium, and that's when it's inflamed, itis just means inflammation anytime you see that word. So this would be bursitis would be inflammation of the bursa or tendonitis inflammation of the tendon. Synovitis is inflammation of this lining of the joint. And synovitis is what we see in rheumatoid arthritis. That's the predominant site of the overactive immune system. It basically stimulates these lining cells to grow and get very large and it forms almost like a tumor. This is a huge amount of tissue that's in there and the tissue starts to then erode away at the cartilage and sometimes even erode away at the bone if the inflammation is extensive enough and of a longer, long enough term duration. So in a normal joint you would see a very thin lining, not much joint fluid would be present, that's kind of in this pale blue area. And in a inflamed joint like with rheumatoid arthritis, you would see a very thickened synovium, a lot of additional fluid would be produced and that would cause the signs of inflammation that we see, which is heat and redness and swelling. And what you perceive then is pain and limitation of range of motion. So those are the predominant signs that you would see with an inflamed joint. When you think about what predicts rheumatoid arthritis, because the question obviously is, will come to your mind, you know, why do these diseases predominate in women? And why do we see them cluster in families? What are the triggers? What are the things that we know that kind of lead to uh, rheumatoid arthritis? We do know that, um, is that in focus in the back? It's not in focus up here, but if you can see it, that's fine. So certainly gender influences um, we know that they're, they're more common in women, though not as um, prone to um, gender influence as lupus is, and we'll talk about that a little later. Environment, interestingly enough, uh, all of the patients that I saw during this last storm pretty much came in and said, you know, they could predict before the rain started, several hours before they feel it. And you actually, that has to do with the barometric pressure. When the barometric pressure falls, many people who have inflammation in their joints will have symptoms um, that, of an exacerbation or flare of their disease. And it's actually not just a wives tale, it's actually uh, very true. But not everyone who has arthritis will experience that, but people who do tend to um, experience, it, experience it very consistently. Hereditary is, is clearly an issue, and this is a family tree, but it's not so typical that a parent will will have rheumatoid arthritis and then the child will. That's a little unusual. What we see is a clustering of autoimmune diseases. 
and I don't know how much you've talked about the variation of these, but this could be anything from rheumatoid arthritis and lupus to other types of connective tissue disease to things like asthma or multiple sclerosis or type 1 juvenile diabetes. All of those are, are autoimmune diseases, and you may see them within families. One of the most common types of autoimmune diseases is thyroid disease. Many types of thyroid disease is autoimmune. So when I take a history, I'm asking people not only is there any arthritis in their family, but do they have other of these autoimmune diseases? And many times you can see that kind of link. So it's, it's not just one gene, it's probably a family of genes that make a person more susceptible to these autoimmune diseases. This is one particular gene, this HLA antigen DR4, uh, that is more commonly seen in people who have severe rheumatoid arthritis. So we believe it's somewhat of a severity marker, but uh, there are other genes that also influence your getting this disease. The early features we talked a little bit about, you may have when asymmetric, meaning one side of the body is more prominent than the other, or very symmetric, both sides are, are influenced, of small joints like in the hands and feet or larger joints in the shoulders and knees, and the signs of inflammation we mentioned. This is an interesting phenomenon, morning stiffness, and this is when you first get up in the morning, the joints haven't been moved, and you go to move and you feel like the tin man and nothing will move, it's very stiff and painful usually. And then with time, after you know, maybe getting in the shower, getting your coffee and getting going, things loosen up. And this uh, also can occur if you sit down for you know, a couple of hours, you may get stiff again. And so this experience of stiffness in the joints, if it lasts longer than half an hour, is very characteristic of inflammation in joints. So people who have degenerative arthritis usually have maybe five or ten minutes of stiffness, where people with rheumatoid arthritis, it may last all day. So it's a very interesting phenomenon that can help to distinguish uh, different types of um, arthritis. And this gelling phenomenon is, is what happens. You sort of become gelled in place when you sit still for any period of time. That's the term. Other features, which reminds me to tell you that Rheumatoid arthritis is actually a systemic disease. Now, systemic just means that it goes throughout the whole body. So people think of it as being just affecting the joints, but it does more than that. These mediators of inflammation, things in your blood that we can measure that are causing uh, or a result of the inflammation, actually cause one to feel ill. People feel very fatigued. This is a hallmark, again, of these types of autoimmune diseases is people are very tired. And it's not just because they're having pain, but it's because of this phenomenon of the inflammation throughout their body. Malaise or just feeling ill as part of it. And often people actually run a low-grade fever. Sometimes can lose their appetite and lose weight. So it can be a uh, phenomenon that actually affects more than just the joints and other organs, as I'll mention, uh, can also be affected. This is a young boy who has um, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis and um, you can have just one joint affected as he has had one leg you can see is actually longer than the other one had to do with the inflammation causing an increase in growth in that side it can actually go the other way around and stop the growth and then this young girl had a very severe form you can see both her knees are swollen she's got swelling in her hands it affected her neck and it can be very severe even at a young age so we can see it at, at really all ages. 
when you first start seeing signs in an adult who has a rheumatoid arthritis, this is most typical of what you would see, kind of a, a, a swelling that's around the joints that are affected. This row of joints and this row of joints as well as the wrists are much more commonly affected in rheumatoid arthritis, where in degenerative arthritis it's actually these small joints at the very ends of the fingers and these these joints that form bony spurs, very hard spurs. If you felt of this joint, it would feel boggy. And that's because of that increased lining of the joint as well as more fluid being produced in the joint. And often would be hot or red as well because of the inflammation. If this disease progresses, it can involve more joints as far as uh, the function. And you can start to see that there is limitation to motion. Can't really completely extend the fingers and probably if you tried to have them move the wrist because they're very swollen, there's a limitation there. And this is because there is a progression and, and erosion into the cartilage and possibly even into the bone where there's been damage that's now irreversible. What we're really trying to do in, in treating people is treat them at the earlier stage, trying to prevent, if we can, control the inflammation because we can't cure it, but maybe can control it to prevent as much of the deformity as possible. And you can see it can progress to even further joint changes. You can also see these little lumps, which are called rheumatoid nodules. These are areas of inflammation under the skin that's led, that is created by little blood vessels that are inflamed. So that's another part of the uh, rheumatoid arthritis, and you wouldn't see these kinds of nodules in uh, degenerative arthritis. And an even more destructive one with uh, showing that really very dysfunctional hand and the joints are really just so eroded away you really can't make them out. Normally there should be eight bones in the wrist and you can't make out but kind of one mass here. So they basically, all the joint space has been destroyed and they kind of fused together. So this is obviously very advanced. This is the same sort of phenomenon in the foot. So you can see these kinds of changes. The toes start to be cocked up a little bit because of the change in the orientation of the joints and even you know, a more severe deformity. And this just shows a little bit about what's going on in the x-ray. So I was describing what was happening. This is very early in the stage when there's just some swelling and inflammation present when that joint lining is thickening you can start to see a little area that seems a little thinner right here. And then you can see there's actually been this erosion that's occurred. So probably in this stage, if we could see the cartilage, the cartilage would have been eroded away. And here the bone was actually showing this erosion. So this is the progression with time that uh, rheumatoid arthritis can take. And this is a view looking in with an arthroscope into a knee, and actually four different knees. This is actually pretty normal. This is a cartilage surface that's on the bone. And this is kind of looking on the side where the joint lining tissue is. This is normal synovium. There's not much uh, blood usually seen in normal synovium because they put a tourniquet on to do the arthroscopy. But it shows a little bit of blood, a little pink, and it looks kind of like little fronds uh, that are there. But this would be considered normal. This is showing increased blood flow into this area of synovium. And actually these little growths, remember I told you it's somewhat like little tumors growing in the joint, and that's what you see. Now it looks like fingers that are coming out 
if you take, and you can see how much blood flow there is because that's part of the inflammation. And this is even more advanced where you actually see some breakdown of the cartilage uh, from this inflamed synovium. So this is just a little bit of what it actually looks like uh, when you see this inflammation in a, in a joint. These uh, rheumatoid nodules, again, are part of what we see uh, in rheumatoid arthritis, uh, rarely seen in any other disease. So that's pretty helpful in identifying that disease. And just to give you an idea of how we classify um, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, rheumatology is full of sets of criteria because um, there's, in rheumatology, people don't usually come in with a sign on their forehead and say, I have rheumatoid arthritis. You know, they'll have fatigue and joint pain or maybe some blood tests that are helpful in identifying things. But uh, it's really putting together these groups of signs and symptoms and trying to identify which of the diseases they may have because there's many overlapping features. So what the um, American College of Rheumatology has done is tried to go through and help people in identifying what are the most likely things you would see in order to make a diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis. So they're saying that people should have four of these seven criteria to, um, to make the, the diagnosis uh, confirmed and that the ones that have the asterisks must be present for at least six weeks. So remember we talked about the morning stiffness of at least uh, an hour uh, being present, swelling in three or more joints, swelling in a hand joint, swelling that's symmetric, say in both hands or both feet, these erosions or areas where you start to see early changes in the bone uh, of the hand, the nodules that I showed you, and also that you could check a rheumatoid factor, which is an antibody that's present in the blood. Unfortunately, this rheumatoid factor is not always there. Two-thirds to three-quarters of people with rheumatoid arthritis have that rheumatoid factor, but it's also present in many other autoimmune diseases. So even if it's not there, you still may have rheumatoid arthritis, and if it is there, you may not have rheumatoid arthritis. So it, it is only a clue. So you can see that any four of these may help you in, in confirming the diagnosis. And this is just to uh, let you know that not only uh, the systemic features of rheumatoid arthritis can cause fatigue and um, fever and malaise, but it may affect specific other areas. And remember I mentioned that one gene, the DR4 gene, HLA-DR4, that is seen in more severe cases of rheumatoid arthritis. And often those people who have that gene will have some other area of their body affected by rheumatoid arthritis. And I'm not going to go through all of this, but just to indicate to you that there are many different other parts of the body that can be affected by rheumatoid arthritis. But fortunately, that's reserved to a few percentage, maybe 10 to 15% of people with rheumatoid arthritis will have one of these other areas of inflammation. Okay, well I want to move on to lupus and then again allow enough uh, time for questions. And I think with lupus it may be best to start uh, with some criteria, but first off just to, uh, I want to come back to kind of the gender uh, question. And one thing that I failed to mention in rheumatoid arthritis before we leave that topic is there's, there's two kind of striking differences between women who have rheumatoid arthritis and women who have lupus. Women who have rheumatoid arthritis, when they get pregnant, often go into remission with regards to their arthritis. And this phenomenon was identified um, decades ago. In fact, when Philip Hinch, who got the Nobel Prize for identifying hydrocortisone in 1950, 
um, that was one of his observations and one of the ways they discovered hydrocortisone was they said, well, people who have rheumatoid arthritis, women get much better while they're pregnant. There must be something in their system that is causing that. And he would take the blood of pregnant patients and purified it and came up with something he called compound E that turned out to be hydrocortisone because that's one of the hormones that is increased during pregnancy. Hydrocortisone is made by the adrenal gland and we all make a certain amount of hydrocortisone but what was found was in very high doses hydrocortisone can be a wonderful anti-inflammatory agent and they actually thought they had a cure for rheumatoid arthritis and many other inflammatory conditions when it was first discovered. The only problem was that there are significant side effects to using large doses of hydrocortisone so we now know that that's not the answer. It can be a very effective treatment when used judiciously but it's not the answer. So th that's a very interesting observation because that's definitely not the case in lupus. We run into a lot of problems with pregnancy in lupus in many women and I'll come back to that and actually your speaker uh, at your next uh, lecture, Dr. Van Bollenhoven, will speak a great deal to that because that's an area of his research in using a new androgen called DHEA in treating um, lupus patients. And a lot of the reason he, he is interested in that is because of the problems that women who have lupus have around their menstrual cycles as well as during pregnancy. So that will be an issue he'll definitely expand upon. But we find that an interesting contrast because there are a lot of similarities between these two diseases and certainly a female predominance in both, but a, a big difference when it, um, when it goes to looking at pregnancy in someone who has one of these diseases. In looking at lupus, the um, female predominance is about 10 to 1 compared to men. So certainly a much higher incidence. Uh, seen in women and um, this is even true uh, when they looked at laboratory animals who who have lupus like diseases uh, usually the female uh, animals have a much more severe disease and and it's much more prominent and that's definitely true in um, uh, human populations as well so that when we see men who have lupus oftentimes it is a milder disease um, so it's, a, it's very interesting and certainly has led to some of the interest in looking at hormonal therapy for uh, lupus patients. So in trying to identify a little bit more about what lupus is, we're again looking at some of the signs and the symptoms and putting those together. Uh, this is a group of criteria that were updated in, in 1982 and very similar to the rheumatoid arthritis criteria that out of these 11 criteria they, uh, if you have four of them either at the same time or over time, it could be over 10 years or 20 years, they may not all be present at once and that's what makes lupus a challenge to diagnose. So these are just the most common um, one, uh, criteria that are seen to help identify and separate lupus from other diseases. So I just want to mention these um, to you and, and give you some examples. The malar rash is what's known as a butterfly rash. It goes across the bridge of the nose and into the cheeks, and I'll show you some examples. It may be on some other areas, the forehead or chin or neck, but it spares the area right around the nose and around the eyes. So that's why it typically has this butterfly appearance. And that's a very classic rash for lupus. Unfortunately, other 
rashes can look like that. So if you see someone with a butterfly rash, it doesn't automatically mean they have lupus. There are other photosensitive type rashes, rashes that occur out in the sun that can look like that as well. And discoid rash is actually a specific type of rash, and some people have only this rash, don't have any of the other features of lupus uh, that means that it's throughout the body. So there are some people who only have discoid lupus as just a skin problem and don't have any of the systemic features. But it can be present in people with a systemic disease. This photosensitivity getting out in the sun and having exposure to UV light sets off some of the symptoms and causes flares or exacerbations of lupus symptoms in some people who have lupus, not all. Uh, not everyone has photosensitivity, but in those who have it, it can be very striking. Um, I've seen, I remember a college student who went out and watched a tennis uh, tournament for a weekend and was out in the sun pretty much the whole time, and that was her first symptoms of lupus. She got a rash that was very severe afterwards and then started having joint pain and fever. So sun exposure certainly is one of the triggers in some patients with lupus, but not in everyone. Oral ulcers, these are like canker sores, like little craters that occur in the mouth. They're typically painful. They may be in groups or just single lesions. Arthritis, again, affecting either small or large joints, generally is symmetric. But as opposed to rheumatoid arthritis, this does not usually cause any destruction in lupus patients. So there may be inflammation and pain and stiffness, but it doesn't lead to the erosion of cartilage or bone, so you don't get the deformity that you see in rheumatoid arthritis. So though the same joints may be affected, they're affected in a different way. Serositis just refers to the lining of the abdomen or the heart or the lungs. So pleurisy or peritonitis or pericarditis are all parts of what you may see in lupus. Kidney disease is a, um, can be a very severe part of lupus, and, but in most people is uh, much milder, can cause uh, a inflammation in the kidney that can actually lead to kidney failure uh, in some patients with lupus. Neurologic problems can be very diffuse. Things like seizures can occur and many other different types of neurologic problems. Problems with low blood counts, low white blood count, that fights off infection, anemia, and then low platelets, which have to do with blood clotting. The immunologic disorders and anti-nuclear antibody have to do with blood tests, where we can actually measure abnormalities within the blood. The anti-nuclear antibody is the most common. More than 95% of people with lupus have this antibody. This is another autoimmune antibody. Um, unfortunately, having this antibody um, doesn't give you a diagnosis of lupus. I get lots of referrals when people have discovered they have this antibody and think they must have lupus. Actually, there are some hundred different causes of positive antinuclear antibody, and about 4% of healthy people have this antibody. So having the antibody itself does not give you a disease. It really is, again, just a clue. But the flip side is, is usually true that this antibody is almost always present at some time in the course of people who have lupus. So it may be a very helpful clue uh, in identifying the disorder. And then the other antibodies are ones that um, may also help in making this diagnosis so that there's some other specific antibodies. Just to show you some examples very quickly, this is the discoid rash um, that I mentioned, that rash that may occur in just a um, 
just in a skin disease but can occur in the systemic form. It's a starts as kind of a red area, becomes a darker pigmented uh, area, and tends to be kind of discreet. So you can see there was one here and it left a scar and also here in the scalp. And this is the only rash in lupus that is scarring. The other rashes fortunately are not. And this is actually a good example. This is that butterfly rash. They blinded out the person here. But um, you can see it doesn't affect the area really around the mouth and nose and it doesn't really affect it around the eyes. So it's kind of in this butterfly distribution. And once this person was treated, you can see the rash resolves. So the discoid rash is the only one that's really scarring. And this is actually a newborn who has a rash. And this is a case of neonatal lupus. And just like in rheumatoid arthritis, lupus can affect um, from infants to people uh, that are very elderly. So it can, though it still predominates in the childbearing years in women. Uh, this actually is disease that is passed from maternal antibodies to the fetal circulation that leads to this neonatal lupus. Once the mother's antibodies are out of the baby's circulation, the rash goes away. So this is just an intrauterine transfer of antibodies. So this infant does not grow up to have systemic lupus. It's a very interesting phenomenon, but um, can have this rash that's a part of this neonatal lupus at birth. Uh, generally, we usually start to see um, young people with lupus uh, a little later. I've seen a few people who had diagnosis of lupus in like eight and ten years of age, but it's a, it's a, a little more common in teenage years and again more toward childbearing. But this neonatal lupus is really because of the transfer of maternal antibodies. This is uh, hair loss. This is actually fairly severe. We usually see it much more mild than that. But this grows back. This is not uh, scarring. And this is something that happens in lupus. It's not a part of the criteria, as you saw, but a very common part of what we see. This swelling, you can see, is different than what you saw in rheumatoid arthritis. It's kind of the whole hand is swollen. The person can't really put their hand down flat because of the swelling that's there. Though you may see something that looks a little bit more like rheumatoid arthritis in this picture, you might not be able to tell the difference between this person with lupus and an early rheumatoid arthritis case. So you can see how it may be difficult to identify these disorders at the beginning. This is actually a, a picture, and I don't know how technical you want to get here, but this is an anonuclear antibody test. And the reason I like to show this is because I think people um, uh, don't realize how in, in inexact the science is sometimes of making these diagnoses. They actually look at a group of cells. These are a, a group of cells taken from a tumor cell line. And so these are cells that are multiplying very quickly because it's a tumor. And they take these cells and they identify, uh, they actually put a tag that is fluorescent, an antibody, in a mixture with the patient's sera. So we drew blood from someone we think might have lupus. We mix it with this fluorescent tag that will tag to anonuclear antibodies and then put it on this slide. And if there are antibodies present, it will go to the nucleus of these various cells and then light up various parts of the nucleus. So these are actually four different types of uh, nuclear staining. All of these would be positive anti-nuclear antibodies, but then they would be of a specific type. But 
the way they give you the amount or the titer of the anti-nuclear antibody is by diluting this, the patient's blood and continuing to look across the slide to see if they see any of this fluorescence. So you can imagine that there is some variation in how this is read. So people are always asking me, well, why is one anti-nuclear antibody test different than another? And you can see that it has a lot to do with who's reading it. And those are all the slides I have. Let me just see if there, if you want to turn up the lights, and let me just see if there's any other comments I want to make, and then we can open it up for questions. Let me just address very, very briefly, because I know Dr. Van Vollenhoven will go into this more um, at your next lecture, but in uh, women who have lupus, we sometimes see the very early manifestations of their disease come out at the time that they're pregnant. Um, actually, just a week ago in my clinic, um, this is what happened. A woman had had some symptoms of arthritis, and we knew she had an anti-nuclear antibody, but then she became pregnant, and her disease became very active. She developed m many more joints that were swollen. Her fever went very high. And so it was clear that the hormonal influence of her pregnancy was causing her disease to be more active. Now, that does not always occur. There are some women who f go through their pregnancy, do very well, and have no flare of their lupus at all. Sometimes the flare occurs after the delivery, and this could happen even if there was a miscarriage or an abortion. You may see a flare of the disease afterwards. So we're always very careful in monitoring um, women who are pregnant with lupus, and we consider them all at high risk because of the fact that there's increase in uh, preterm births and a phenomenon called preeclampsia where you can become hypertensive and have to deliver the baby early and also increase in miscarriages uh, in women who have lupus. And as you see, there's a phenomenon if you have certain type of antibodies, they can be passed to the baby that can cause neonatal lupus. There are other antibodies that can influence the, the miscarriage rate and also can cause problems with blood clotting. So it's a very important thing to know it, um, if, you're, if you have lupus, you need to plan your pregnancies carefully uh, because women do better if they have had fairly quiescent disease for six months prior to getting pregnant. So if they really haven't had many symptoms, they usually do much better during their pregnancy. So there are definitely many issues that come up, and like I say, I'm sure Dr. Van Vollenhoven will address those more um, in his uh, c uh, comments as well. So what I'd like to do at this point is uh, uh, open this up a little bit to discussion. I'd be happy to talk about treatment if you're interested in that, but I wanted to get at some of your basic questions as well. Obviously, I don't have cures for most of the things that I see, so I'm always hopeful there's going to be more research done in all of these areas. I think as a practicing physician, uh, we're always hopeful to have better um, ammunition, you know, to fight uh, um, these diseases and help keep them under better control. Uh, I, I don't know if I can specifically answer your question because I'm not in the area of research, uh, but certainly I think that the, it is a focus uh, of interest. There's always been an uh, a, a question as to why is there a female predominance in these diseases and I think that they are getting more attention I know there's always you know there's a debate now saying well the male predominant diseases like heart disease and those kinds of things have had more money um, and they also affect more people so it's you know it's hard when you're looking at the 
the resources that are available and some of it has to do with where are we in our understanding in order to make these breakthroughs. There's a lot of research being done in, in the immunological science area. This is really, we expect in the next five to ten years, the area where most breakthroughs are going to come as far as uh, medicine. So um, I feel, you know, I'm just out on the, the bridge of being able to see some much better things being offered to people. Um, I don't know if I can speak historically and say whether, you know, enough attention was given. I, I think it's some of it's just where we are in our understanding. For instance, we learned a great deal from what we have now know from HIV um, um, research. So, you know, it carries over uh, what you learn from your immune system about that disease, which is totally different, still helps in understanding, you know, some of these other problems with the immune system. So I think it's just where we are in our understanding in general. You know, that's a very good question, and, and so far I think the record I've seen is six different autoimmune diseases in one person. So, yes, that unfortunately is the case. Uh, if you have one autoimmune disorder, you're much more likely to have another. So we see autoimmune thyroid disease extremely commonly um, in rheumatoid arthritis and in lupus, um, things like pernicious, pernicious anemia, I didn't mention that, but that's you know, another one that we may see. So there's, there's just a lot of those that can occur. And I also didn't mention, but, there, but I refer to in this chapter, there are many overlapping autoimmune diseases so that uh, you may have rheumatoid arthritis and lupus. Um, you, it seems unfair, but you know, some people do get more than one of these diseases. And the other thing that can occur is they may transition. So you may have beginning at your time when you have an illness have rheumatoid arthritis and then it may transition to lupus or transition to scleroderma. So there's, there's any number of possibilities of either overlapping features or transitioning from one autoimmune process to another. So it's an excellent question and is very true of what we see. It's still, yeah, it still is a bit. I mean, we've identified a few of the triggers. I showed you some of the ones we think may be influenced in rheumatoid arthritis. Um, some of the triggers in lupus, other than ultraviolet light and hormonal influences, certainly like in pregnancy. Um, we, do, we know that there's environmental factors. One thing I didn't mention is that there's it's something very interesting about the genetics because in monozygotic twins, identical twins, if one has rheumatoid arthritis, there's less than a 50% chance that the other will. I, f I find that very interesting. <laughs> it means something in the environment has triggered this one person's genetic makeup. And again, it may have more to do with kind of this apoptosis situation where maybe there, we, really, we know that those individuals have identical genes, but they don't have identical immune systems. So it's clear that, you know, the influences along the line, you know, do make a difference in what eventually shows up in that person. In lupus, it's a little higher. It's closer to 60% chance that both twins will have lupus if one does. But it's, um, it, it really is a very interesting phenomenon. So we don't know what all those triggers are. 
I hear a lot of people describe their initial symptoms with either lupus or rheumatoid arthritis as being like a flu. And so it makes you think, well, is there a viral um, cause, you know, something that then, you know, you, you've got your immune system turned on and does it then just turn on to other things or somehow get activated in a different way? Uh, it's a very good question and I don't think we, we really understand what all the uh, triggers that might lead to, to them. Well, I address that just a little bit in the sense that um, having rheumatoid arthritis or lupus per se doesn't always cause you to, say, be more susceptible to infections. Sometimes in lupus, particularly very severe lupus, that may be the case. Um, but what we do find is that um, a lot of times when you have an infection, so let's say someone with lupus gets pneumonia, their lupus usually becomes more active during the time that they have the infection. Now, is that, again, just kind of a spillover effect of the immune system? Um, I don't know. I don't really have a, a good idea of how, how that works, but I can tell you clinically that's what occurs, is that people will get sicker from their underlying disease at the time that they're you know, fighting off an infection. I would say that it, it doesn't, it doesn't. I mean, people who are even on any immunosuppressive drugs may have that same phenomenon occur. You know, they get a cold or a urinary tract infection and they feel worse from their disease standpoint otherwise. And that same phenomenon can occur, for instance, in lupus patients premenstrually. So, you know, each month they may notice a little bit more of their symptoms around the time before their menstrual cycle begins. Um, so that, you know, can, can be seen. Um, but, I, you know, I don't know that I can really answer your question fully. Yes, Emma. Well, a lot of times uh, dermatologists can be very good at sorting it out. Some of the more common rashes that can look identical to it is a, a rash called rosacea. I don't know if anybody in the room has had it, but it's pretty common. And it can be almost in the same distribution, have a very similar appearance. So I would say that unless the person is otherwise ill, a dermatologist can often sort it out. Uh, if necessary, blood tests can be run or a biopsy can be done. But I get a lot of referrals from dermatologists who have then, you know, said, gee, this looks kind of suspicious. Could you take a look and see if there's something I'm missing? So I would think that that would be a good place to start. If there's other features, joint pain or things like that, then certainly a rheumatologist would be someone good to see. Hmm. I, I don't know that I can really speak to that well. The data would tend to, to agree with you, but I think a lot of it is the increased awareness of it. So I'm not sure how to sort that out. It's interesting about rheumatoid arthritis as far as looking at skeletons. They really don't find it, it being present. And skeletal remains much before kind of the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. So whatever that means, I don't know. People have speculated a lot of reasons as to why it's not seen in, um, in previous skeletons. There are other forms of arthritis. Ankylosing spondylitis has been seen in very old skeletal remains. 
but not rheumatoid arthritis. And of course, lupus would be something you couldn't, you know, find uh, in those kind of remains. So I don't, I really don't know the answer to that. If it has indeed been increasing, or is it more our awareness uh, of it? I don't know. Uh, I think Dr. Van Vollenhoven may be able to address that, but I don't know. I don't know the answer. But I would be glad to hang around afterwards if your class needs to break, if there are other questions that we didn't answer. Thank you very much. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.